All right. Well, this is this is exciting. I like I like doing stuff like this because uh, it gives me an opportunity to a to to teach something about something that I I love, uh, but also to dive in deeper to something that um, I have an excuse to to research and read about a little bit more. I've done lots of uh, reading and researching about Vatican II in various ways and forms and. Um, read the documents multiple times and read lots of things about what people have said, both on the uh, yay Vatican II side and the boo Vatican II side, and, um, and as, as well as reading about, um, uh, sometimes the most helpful is reading people who were actually there and what they were experiencing while, while they were there, because it's different than looking at it later and saying, oh, this is, this is what Vatican II said, taught, did, whatever, and what they were actually experiencing there. Like, so Fulton Sheen had a very positive take being, being a, a bishop at the council. Um, others, uh, you know, talk about the, the general like, excitement. Some talk about, like, uh, everybody was basically like, oh, great, an ecumenical council, which um, I can see all those things happening. I know that even when we have a, you know, a synod here in our archdiocese, priests can tend to be like, uh, one more thing, and I can just imagine, you know, the Pope saying, hey, all the bishops of the world, I need you to come to Rome for three months at a time for the next several years. I'm sure they were like, yeah, I had nothing else to do during that time, so perfect. So it, there's all sorts, all sorts. I, I don't want to, um, I, I don't, we're not going to get into the polemics. We'll kind of see where they, where they land, but I want us just to kind of like get uh, get to Vatican II uh, and what it actually did, said, and is about. Um, so the way that we'll do the class is uh, we'll break it into two parts each class. Uh, so we'll take a little bit of a break halfway through. What time did I say we're going to? Eight? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll take a break at 7.15-ish. Uh, and then, um, so today I want to talk about Councils in general, because if we don't understand what a, an ecumenical council is, then the ecumenical council of the Vatican II doesn't uh, make so much sense to us. We might get the wrong idea of what it is. Uh, and then we'll dive into um, a little bit of Vatican II specifically. Next week, we'll talk about some of the teachings of Vatican II and how they were or weren't received and then the last, the last class, I'm going to dive into the liturgical conundrum because that seems to be where most of the, the wars are fought uh, in the, in the lit- liturgy. So, um, I want to I start with this. This is, this is what Pope Benedict XVI said to the Roman clergy uh, shortly before, he'd already announced his retirement. This is one of his last public acts. And this is how he ends his address to them. It wasn't a very long address, but this is how he ends it. And this is, this is February 14, 2013. It seems to me that 50 years after the council, we see that this virtual council is broken. I'll explain more what the virtual council is as we go on. The virtual council is broken, is lost, And there now appears the true council with all its spiritual force. And it is our task, especially in this year of faith, on the basis of this year of faith, to work so that the true council, with its power of the Holy Spirit, 
be accomplished and the church be truly renewed. Let us hope that the Lord will assist us. I myself, secluded in prayer, will always be with you and together let us go forward with the Lord in the certainty that the Lord will conquer. Thank you. So, 2013, 50 years after the beginning of the council, and Pope Benedict, who was at the council, is saying we're just starting to get to the point of actually implementing the council. We'll, we'll, we'll look and see if that's, if that's novel or not, but it should at least strike us as, hmm, there's, there's more to this than, than perhaps I know. So, let's start there. How many of you were alive in 1962? All right, good. Um, were you old enough to read in 1962? Yeah, okay, good. Um, were you reading the church documents in 1962? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hobby, uh, newspaper, then the latest encyclical. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we're getting to a point where less and less people were around at the, at the beginning of Vatican II. Um, I mean, more, the, the real uh, turmoil of Vatican II was probably more in the mid-60s and into the 70s. Uh, that was when, uh, we'll, we'll get into that when we get into the liturgical controversy. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so there's, there's less and less and less, and... The, those who, I mean, I, I think back of when I was, when I was 20, and I know, I mean, like, I, I remember when Ratzinger was made Pope Benedict, and even at that point, I was like, I don't, I don't really know what's going on, conclave, schmanclave, what, you know, so it's like entering into the world of church politics is not something, even as a pretty well-formed 24-year-old, I was, I was adept to be able to do. Uh, and that's probably most of us. You know, we can look back and like, yeah, I could, you know, it's like I knew what was going on, but do we know, we know what church politics going on? Uh, so I think this is, this is one of the, this is one of the, um, uh, you know, when it, comes, when it comes to Vatican II, a lot of people do this. I was alive during Vatican II, therefore I know what Vatican II said. And that's, a, that's actually a, a problem. That's, that, might be, that might be the biggest problem. I was alive, and so I know what it did. And I want to say, well, did you read the documents? Well, let me ask you, who's read the documents of Vatican II? Deacon Mike? So, how many, who knew that there were documents of Vatican II? <laughs> we'll start there. All right, good. Let's get. So, these are the documents of Vatican II. Like, that's a pretty thick book. There's 16 documents of varying levels and degrees of, of different weights and different topics. Um, but that's, that's, a thick, that's a thick book. I mean, that's 500, almost 600 pages of, of fairly dense uh, church stuff. I mean, some of it reads pretty, pretty easily, you know. It's, it's, it's not like um, reading dense theology. But at the same time, it's like, man, there's a lot of words in here that you're not gonna, you're not gonna, a normal, normal person's not going to know. And again, most people haven't haven't read it. So if they know that the doc, if they know documents exist, very few of us have, have taken the time to um, to see what they actually said. Uh, so uh, 
What's a church council? Okay, how many church councils have there been? We'll start with that. Did you have a guess, Amy? Five. I'm getting a five. I got a two. I got a four. I got a 12. 23. Uh, there's 21 ecumenical councils. Um, and if you want to know what they are, I will recite them for you right now. Nico, FKL, Coco, Nico, La, La, Lulu, La, La, Rico, Flo, Latri, Va, Va. That's on the bottom of the back page of your um, handout. I had to memorize that in seminary. And uh, that stands for uh, uh, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Constantinople II, Constantinople III, Nicaea II, Constantinople IV, uh, uh, Lateran I, Lateran II, Lateran III, Lateran IV, Lyon, Lyon II, Vienne, Constance, Florence, Lateran V, Trent, Vatican I, and Vatican II. So there's been 21 ecumenical councils uh, t- covering a vast uh, array of topics. Most of them came up, uh, most, most councils came up because of some heresy going on in, in the church. So the early councils, Council of um, uh, Nicaea, for instance, in 325, uh, these, it didn't, didn't last very long. Basically, the thing that was going on was Arianism. And so the bishops got together and said, no, Arianism is bad. You can't be an Arian. Let's go home. And the problem was all solved, right? Well, so the next council was in 381. Somebody do the math. How many years later is that? 325 to 381. 56 years later, we have another council. What's that council about? Well, apparently people didn't get the memo that Arianism is wrong and you can't be an Arian anymore. And so they had to have another council to keep condemning things. And really what, what, would, what would keep happening is like, okay, well, this and this. And we kept not quite getting the middle. This was, this was bad, too. Like 325, the way that Newman says it when he, he's, he's, he's a doing his history, he says, it's like you would wake up and the whole world was Arian. Most of the bishops in the, in the country were Arian. That's how, that's how bad it was. You know, so this is, this is a bad time to, to be a Catholic. Um, Ralph Martin had a podcast recently said, are we living in the worst times that the church has ever seen? That's how he started. And he goes, no, the Arian controversy in the 300s was worse, but this is pretty bad. <laughs> um, so 381, that's the, that's the Council of Constantinople. And then in 431, so that's another 50 years later, there's another council, Council of Ephesus. Uh, this one was still, this is still, a the, this is still a Christological, these are the Christological councils, it's still a Christological uh, conundrum. Nestorius at this time is trying, is the way that his theology is coming out is stipulated, sounds like there's two persons and two natures. So the whole, the whole several first councils gives us there's, there's one God, he's three persons, we got that. Jesus is one person, one divine person with two divine natures. He's not one nature, and one nature is not subsumed by the other. He's not adopted by the Father. He's not a human being that was granted the, the class of divinity. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That's actually the first two councils, Ephesus, uh, Nicaea, and, um, sorry, Nicaea and Constantinople. 
that's where we get the, the Nicene Creed. It's actually the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. That's where we get that formula. If you look at the differences between the Apostles' Creed and then the Nicene Creed, that's where you get all the God from God, light from light, true God from true God, consubstantial, not made, one with the Father, you know, all that stuff. Um, so these are super, super duper important. But the, one of the points I'm, I'm wanting to make is, A, usually councils pop up because of a heresy, and B, they don't always solve all the problems right away. So these two councils, 56 years and 50 years, they call another one. Uh, and then the next council after that is in 451. So that's 20 years later. Uh, they're, going, they're going to council uh, again for another heresy that was, that was popping up. And then they made it for 100 years before another council. Whew! Oh. Imagine if you had to like go to multiple councils as a as a bishop. Like we just we just did this. Um, so uh, that was a, that was a good string. There was another good string of councils in the 1100s. There was uh, I think there was five councils within about 125 years. Um, some other notable councils are the Council of uh, Lyon. Um, that was when the word filioque was inserted into the creed. That caused a lot of, a lot of controversy, um, but also was uh, important for our theology of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Council of Constance. This is when we had um, multiple popes going around, and we were trying to figure out uh, who is the real pope, and there are some depositions and some revoting and all sorts of fun stuff like that. And then probably the um, most famous council would be, well, what's the most famous council? Trent. <laughs> so Council of Trent's the, the most famous. It comes, on the dawn, uh, it comes after, during what? Protestant Reformation, exactly. So you can see, again, you can see why we're, we, need to, we need to call this, this council. Um, the, whole, the whole world, I mean, this is, this, is, this is where Christendom literally splinters. We have everybody, everybody's united under the Pope. We're all Christian. Everybody, you know, not everybody's perfect, but we all know what we're, we're doing. And then all of a sudden, you got this faction, this faction, this faction. So the, the 91 thesis is, what, 1531? The Council of Trent doesn't start until 19, or 15, 1531, 1545. So uh, not, not right away. Uh, I mean, a lot of damage has happened already in 14 years. And that council lasted for quite a while, until um, 1563. Now, they're not meeting continuously, but they're going back and meeting again, coming back, meeting. Uh, by the way, the name of the, the council is the city in which they met in. Uh, so, Nicaea. Um, why did they mean Nicaea? I don't know. Constantinople, of course, that's the, the head of the empire at that time. Ephesus, this is actually a funny story because Nestorius was the bishop of Constantinople. And he was the one being accused of being a heretic, and so he ha he had it. In he you know goes to the to the emperor who's in his backyard, and he says, "Hey emperor, I think we should have another ecumenical council. This will solve all the problems." However, his uh, the emperor's sister Pulcheria, who had already been, uh, let's just say that. Uh, 
Nestorius didn't make friends with her right away. And so, so Pulcheria doesn't like him. And so when Nestorius is on trial for, uh, this is the Theotokos, so whether, whether we call Mary the, the God-bearer or the, the Christ-bearer. And Nestorius was saying the Christ-bearer. And Cyril of Alexandria was saying, no, she's the God-bearer. And so Nestorius says, let's have a council. And Pulcheria says, let's have it in Ephesus. What is Ephesus famous for? Anybody who's been there? What's that? John the Apostle who took care of Mary. And so it's like, it's the biggest Marian shrine in Christendom. And so as soon as they're like, hey, let's do it. It's not in Constantinople like we did the last council. Let's do it in Ephesus. And Nestorius knew he was, he was sunk at that moment. So sometimes it's uh, political. Sometimes it's just geographical. Uh, now that we have the, the Vatican, uh, you know, the, the Vatican I was 1870. Uh, and then any foreseeable, uh, you know, reason to have a council, you'd probably still have it in the Vatican because that's... The best space to house a million uh, bishops. Um, so uh, Trent, uh, yeah. So Trent, Trent gathers to solve the problem of the Reformation and all that, and and really codifies a lot of a lot of things. You know, it's from Trent that we get, hey, there's seven sacraments. There's not six. There's not eight. There's seven because these are the things that are being uh, questioned or thrown out by the Protestant reformers, and so the church is coming in to set the record straight. Uh, this, is what, this is what an ecumenical council is. It's a gathering of all the bishops, all means all the ones who actually show up uh, from, from around the world, uh, universal, and they come to discuss uh, such, uh, controversy of doctrine or, or church practice. Um, it's always under the headship of the Pope. Whether he's there or not is sometimes, it just depends. Uh, but at very minimum, he has to ratify it. There have been some councils where uh, the Pope said, yeah, we'll take all of that except not that. So not everything in a council is binding. It depends on what the Pope decides is uh, to keep. And not everything in, the, in a council is, is infallible. The councils aren't like, hey, this is infallible and this is infallible. And this. It's not just infallible because it was, it was there. Uh, but if they say something that they want to be infallible. Right? So there, this is, the, the council itself is an extraordinary act of the magisterium. It's, uh, it's not the normal. It's, it's extraordinary. Uh, but the, the documents themselves, the words themselves, are not necessarily uh, infallible. They're not necessarily something new either. This is one of the things that often you know, people say about uh, Vatican Council. What's infallible? It's like, well, there's a lot of stuff that's infallible in there because a lot of what they were doing is reiterating what we've always believed. You know, so it doesn't have to be new to be infallible. Um, uh, but there's not, a, there's not a lot of new in here. There's not a lot of new in the, in the documents of Vatican II. But that's not actually the point, because in theology, there's not actually a lot of new. <laughs> theology is not novel. Theology is taking from what's been given to us and figuring it out and figuring out how, to it, how it applies to us uh, today and what, uh, what as, as, as the situation changes, how theology continues to inform us. But we don't go around making new theology 
like they were doing in the Protestant Reformation, like the Arian heretics and the Storian heretics were doing. They were making new theology. This is always what the, the council comes back to. is like, no, 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 that's, that's not part of the tradition. That's not part of it. Um, so we can't, we can't hold to that. Um, all right, so any, um, any, any questions on, on all of that? I have a couple, uh, there's a couple of quotes on the back side of your, um, your page. Yeah. If you're going to get to it later, are you going to talk a little bit about what Vatican I is trying to accomplish? So Vatican I, uh, Vatican I actually had like 50 uh, topics that they were going to try to cover. And the only one that they got to is papal infallibility. So that's where papal infallibility is defined. And again, that doesn't mean that's when we came up with papal infallibility. That was when uh, the church declared it. Uh, but then because of the uh, Franco-Prussian War, it basically stopped. So it only lasted for uh, a year, and then it got paused, and then it actually, before they started the Second Council, Vatican Council, they basically had to say, the end, new thing. So that was that was the second, the first Vatican Council. All right. So we're gonna play a game of name that theologian. All right. So this is the first quote I think. It says if I'm to, if I'm to write the truth, I keep as far as possible from any meeting of bishops because I never knew a council with a happy ending, nor one that did not do more harm than good. Any guesses? That's Gregory the Great. Way back in the uh, 600s, I think. He's a bishop. It's always funny when bishops say they avoid gatherings with bishops. Um, This next one, uh, not every valid council in the history of the church has been a fruitful one. In the last analysis, many of them have just been a waste of time. Despite all the good to be found in the text it produced, the last word about the historical value of Vatican Council II has yet to be spoken. That's Cardinal Ratzinger in 1987. Uh, and then this one. Um, all that divine assistance can assure to the successors of the apostles is the absence of possible error in the doctrinal definitions that such assemblies venture to produce. But short of this extreme case, any measure of approximation, insufficiency, or mere superficiality is to be expected even from so sacrosanct an assembly. That's from uh, Father Louis Bouillet, who was also present at the, at the council. I put those because I don't want us to get a too... Um, a too lofty sense of what a council is all about. Here you have several, several men, and there's, there's others. Those are the quotes that I found recently that uh, it's like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't, all, this isn't all good. And you get St. Saint, Saint Gregory's, and I'm like, oh, great, another, another meeting, you know, another conference that I got to go to. Um, uh, Bouillet, same thing. He says, he says in another place, when, when everybody's going off to the council, there's just kind of this, this general dread um, and he says the, the, best, the, the best we can hope for is there's not going to be any uh, error in the doctrinal de- definitions. 
but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that everything that a council says is um, it's the right timing or said the right way or um, anything else. In fact, uh, John Henry Newman uh, around the Vatican Council one, he was against them de- defining that a papal infallibility. He didn't think they should do it. He didn't, not that he didn't believe it. He believed it. He knew that it was. He knew that it was true. He just didn't think it was the time to do it. He thought it was. It was. It was not a good political move, or it's just. It wasn't going to be helpful, and so he was against it. And of course, when the church does it, he says, "Great, they did it." I still don't think they should have done it, but so 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 when we when we engage a council, we don't have to just say, "Great, that that." That was the best thing that ever should have happened, and you know I can't say that you know they could have done it any better. We don't have to. We don't have to hold that. Okay. Now we want to. We want to be respectful that the Holy Spirit brought together a lot of a lot of intelligent people to put something together for the sake of the church. But was it absolutely perfect? Obviously not. Um, okay. So. Why, why, was the, um, why was the Vatican II, why was the Second Vatican Council called? So all these other councils, which there's, there's some heresy, there's, there's multiple popes, there's heretics running around, the whole church is splintering. What was the reason for Vatican II? Why did we need uh, a Vatican II? So Kathy. I'm just going to guess, to bring the liturgy closer to... Bring the liturgy closer to the laity. It really had very little to do with the liturgy. And, and I, mean, I think that's, that's the thing we tend to remember and focus on. And again, that's where all the, the wars are fought. But that wasn't the main purpose. Uh, and I don't know that in the, in the opening address, John the 23rd doesn't mention that. Uh, the liturgy is uh, kind of its own. I mean, it's, it's in there, but that wasn't the main, the main thing. People going through the through the motions and stuff. Well, look at this. I mean, like 1950s. Who's the most watched television personality? And Fulton Sheen. You know, it's like, really? We're not we're not Catholic enough. I mean, seminaries are packed to the rafters. Uh, religious are coming out of our ears. You know, like like it seems like ah yeah we got it we got it going on. Like what do we what do we need to what do we need to do? Yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's a lot, a lot of change. I think that's, I mean, it's huge. And if you just, I mean, like, yeah, you just went back, you know, like 50, 60 years, you know, go back, go back to the last major council, the major time that anything significantly changed in the church at Trent. Like, how much changed since, ni- since 1570? You know, 1570 to, to 1960. I mean, how many, how many different, uh, yeah, what, what, so like, yeah, let's even just go to, go to 1750. 
What happens from 1750 to 1950? French Revolution, two world wars, airplanes are invented, cars are invented, electricity, phones, I mean like all, all sorts of things, nuclear weapons, America is like, you know, just getting off the ground. I mean, all these, all these changes everywhere. Uh, there's, there's so much. Um, think of, think of major. Uh, so, like the, the, uh, the, we, we got the Enlightenment in here somewhere. We have all these um, philosophers that are not coming out with good philosophy. We got Marx. We got Kant. Uh, Hitler. Freud. Darwin. Modernism. Atheism. Communism. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff happening. And even though to, to some, they would look at the 1950s and they're like, wow, you know, this is, this is good. I mean, like cultural Catholicism and being a Christian in, in America in the 50s is a, it's a good place. I mean, values and virtue and, and this is good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple quotes here and you tell me what year they were written in. According to religious statistics... Old Europe is still a part of the earth that is almost completely Christian. But there is hardly another case in which everyone knows as well as they do here that the statistic is false. This so-called Christian Europe for almost 400 years has become the birthplace of a new paganism, which is growing steadily in the heart of the church and threatens to undermine her from within. The outward shape of the modern church is determined essentially by the fact that in a totally new way, she has become the church of pagans and is constantly becoming even more so. She is no longer, as she once was, a church composed of pagans who have become Christians, but a church of pagans who still call themselves Christians, but actually have become pagans. Paganism resides today in the church herself, and precisely that, and precisely that is the characteristic of the church of our day, and that of the new paganism, so that it is a matter of a paganism in the church and of a church in whose heart paganism is living. What year would you think that was written? 1950. That's, 19, 1958. That's, that's Ratzinger in 1958. And, and at the same time, there was other people so like, hey, we had the... Catholic Church is experiencing a unity and uh, you know, a breath uh, that it hasn't experienced in, since Christendom. And, and Ratzinger was such a churchman. He's so smart, so well-read, so, um, yeah, so, so deep. He's saying, no, no, that's, that's not the case at all. Here's another, here's another quote. Um, the Catholic observer would deny the possibility of the church's complete extinction, but he must also follow historical parallels. He also must accept the general laws governing the growth and decay of organisms, and he must tend in view of all the change that has passed in the mind of man to draw the tragic conclusion that our civilization, which has already largely ceased to be Christian, will lose its general Christian tone altogether. The future to envisage is a pagan future, and a future pagan with a new and repulsive form of paganism, but nonetheless powerful and omnipresent, 
for all its repulsiveness. That's, uh, that's Hilaire Belloc in 1938. So again, like 1938, and he's, he's seeing this. He's seeing this. This is how really intellectual people like, who are well-read, they see, they see trends that like, I don't see, you probably don't see. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's helpful. Um, and they weren't, they weren't um, uh, just, just really um, pessimistic. They, they saw it. They saw it. Um, this is 1873. This is Cardinal Newman. He's preaching to a bunch of seminarians. He says, My brethren, you are coming into a world, if present appearance do not deceive, such as priests never came into before. That is, so far forth as you do go into it, so far as you go beyond your flocks, and so far as those flocks may be in great danger as under the influence of the prevailing epidemic. This is 1873. And if at all times this simple unity, this perfect understanding of the members of the head is necessary for the healthy action of the church, especially is it necessary in these perilous times. I know that all times are perilous, and that in every time, serious and anxious minds alive to the honor of God and the needs of men are apt to consider no time so perilous as their own. At all times, the enemy of souls assaults with fury the church, which is their true mother, and at least threatens and frightens when he fails in doing mischief. And all times have their special trials, which others have not. And so far, I will admit that there were certain specific dangers to Christians at certain other times which do not exist in this time. Doubtless, but still admitting this, still I think that the trials which lie before us are such as would appall and make dizzy even such courageous, courageous hearts as St. Athanasius, Arian Heresies, early church, St. Gregory, or St. Gregory VII. And they would confess that dark as the prospect of their own day was to them, sever severally, ours has a darkness different in kind from any that has been before it. The special peril of the time before us is the spread of the plague of infidelity. Christianity has never yet ex had experience of a world simply irreligious. A world simply he's preaching in 1873 to a bunch of seminarians in Ireland Catholic Ireland and he's already he's already seeing the degradation of faith like no we don't we don't believe anymore we've, we've lost our our roots the same thing as as Benedict Ratzinger is noticing noticing yeah people still go to go to church they still call themselves Christian but they're not so we've, we've progressed quite a way since then, but this is what uh, historians and churchmen were already noticing well before. Um, last, last little anecdote, um, uh, Frank Sheed, who is also a great, great churchman, uh, layman, uh, street corner evangelist, writer, he, he was noting that in 1920, he said the, the problem with the church, he said it was, it was vibrant. There's a lot of good. There's so much, so much good. He said the problem was this siege mentality. We had this siege mentality like, hey, keep, keep everybody else out and let's just buckle down. And I think that 
It probably varies from place to place how people, you know, their experience of Catholicism and where and what was going on. But I think I, I see that, um, especially, especially, yeah, all, all sorts of ways, but I can just see how that, all, all these are coming in the mind of John the 23rd, who, by the way, was a church historian. That's what, that's what he had his, his, uh, his, his background in before he became Pope, before he became a, a cardinal. Uh, so he's, he's seeing the same thing. He's saying, no, no, the world has changed so much over these, these past 500 years, 200 years. We need, to, we need to do something. We've been just kind of buckling down. We've just been holding on to what's, what's ours. And his, his real motivation was evangelization. We exist to evangelize. And we can't be, we can't be barricaded up in, in our towers anymore. We need to go out. So this is one of the things you hear that goes back to, he wants to open the window and let in the Holy Spirit. He wants to reinvigorate the church so that we can, we can go out and do what we're called to do. Um, so this, this, is, this is why John the 23rd, it was, it was one of those, um, so John the 23rd, when he was elected, he was, he was very old. Uh, we'd already had a long pope, Pope Pius Twelfth. Uh, he was kind of uh, notorious, hated and loved in equal uh, extremes. And uh, we're like, let's, let's just take a breather. We'll just get a little placeholder in there so we can recoup. And then John the 23rd, who I think was only Pope for like three years, goes and, goes and calls, uh, in a, oh, maybe five years, goes and calls an ecumenical council and just like totally um, throws everybody off. Now, this had been... This had been thought about by several popes before. Like, is this opportune? Those who were advising them said, no, I don't think it is. There's too much, there's too much going on. There's too much polemics in the church. The other side is going to take advantage of that. So these things are already being thought of and uh, worried about. But John the 23rd uh, goes for it. <laughs> Fulton Sheen tells a story that... Um, he had a private conversation with uh, John the 23rd at one point. And John the 23rd, I think he told him, I think he told him some secret about uh, why he called the council. And then at the end of it, Fulton Sheen said, and then he put me under papal secret so that I couldn't tell anybody except under the pain of excommunication. <laughs> so he doesn't tell you what, what it was. But the, the hints that we get and what John the 23rd does reveal is that it was some sort of, he felt like it was some sort of divine revelation. You know, so uh, you, can, you can take that how, how you want. Um, I think we can say uh, a man who is a saint uh, called an ecumenical council. He thought it was, it was incumbent, helpful, it would be helpful for all the bishops to get together and really get on the same page and um, hash some things out. And so that's, that's what he did. So the, uh, he called the council shortly after he was, he was elected, and the council began in 1962. So let's pause right there. That's a good stop, stopping point. And then we can dive into um, some, of the, uh, some of the specifics about Vatican II itself.